real estate investors from Florida, Georgia, and Texas. There's a big online event this coming October that you shouldn't miss. Discover new techniques on how to grow your business and thrive in the middle of the crisis in no time. Just simply go to www.realestateiq.co summit and sign up today. Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us on uh, Real Estate IQ's weekly um, commercial um, webinar. And uh, today we've got uh, Income Tax 101, Basis Gain and Loss. Um, uh, who we are, my name again is Aaron Holkren, President of Paragon Development and Consulting Services. Um, I specialize in apartment, office, retail, industrial, multifamily, and storage deals all across uh, Texas. Um, done over 60 commercial transactions uh, into the hundreds of millions, sourcing institutional debt and uh, uh, private equity debt. I've also today with me, I have Joseph James, on the line, Joseph uh, is uh, one of the guys at Commercial Real or Real Estate IQ, specifically in the commercial part. And uh, Joseph is also the founder of uh, REI Muse, which is a, a really cool platform that helps uh, vet some of these deals. So, and today we also have special guest uh, Brian uh, Bauer. Uh, Brian is a, a tax attorney by trade. He uh, is a graduate of uh, uh, the University of South Dakota, graduated top 10% of his class, uh, went to, um, got his master's of tax. Um, Brian is an adjunct professor at the University of South Dakota and uh, specializing in real estate and tax. Uh, Brian is, uh, is also been uh, working with me for the last 10 years in, um, in the commercial transactions that I've worked on, right? And uh, I've known Brian a long time. He is very, very smart, very good at what he does. He specializes in tax planning for all entities, corporations, partnerships, limited liability companies, nonprofits, uh, qualified in, uh, retirement plans, and real estate syndications. He also does uh, business law and uh, real estate law. So purchase transaction, life kind exchanges, commercial, residential, uh, real estate leases, sale leaseback transactions, tenants in common, ownership title, uh, helps out, helps me out with due diligence, um, real estate development, zoning, planning, land use issues, and whatnot. So I, I give the floor to Mr. Brian J. Bauer, and I'm glad, I'm glad you could join us today, Brian. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you for inviting me, Aaron. Where should we start? I, Aaron had asked me for topics. I'm a webinar virgin, so this is the first time I've had an opportunity to do this. Um, disclaimer that they have up there right now, we're not attorneys, accountants, or financial planners. Yes, I am a, an attorney. I do have a master's of laws in taxation. Um, by the same token, I'm not here to give tax advice with respect to any particular transactions or legal advice. And would certainly encourage you to talk to your own attorney, accountant, and uh, other professionals with respect to any matters. So I just want to give you some general background here. Um, as Aaron mentioned, I do teach uh, at the University of South Dakota School of Law. I teach advanced real estate transactions, 
and advance business organizations to third year law students before I turn them loose on the world. Um, and basically my, my point in both of those instances is if they're doing real estate transactions, commercial transactions, business transactions, they really need to, need to understand tax. And um, that's frankly the reason I went back and got my Master of the Laws in Taxation is I had some frustrations early in my private practice with respect to um, tax issues and, and looking at tax being law and tax planning being legal planning and being a little frustrated with uh, some of the lack of expertise. So I thought I'd go back and spend a year just making love to the tax code. So I did that back in 1987, which is fortunate because they had just passed the Tax Reform Act of 1986. So I was schooled under the new law. So that'll kind of tell you that I've been doing this for 35 years as a licensed attorney in South Dakota. I'm also a licensed real estate broker in South Dakota. I now live in Texas, been here for a couple of years and absolutely love it, especially this time of year. Um, <clears throat> Interestingly enough, though, when I look at becoming a Texas licensed attorney, it's very easy because of my length of practice. I'm able to basically put in an application, pay a fee and get my Texas law license. Now, I've been a broker for 35 years in South Dakota as well. So you think it would be that easy down here. But even though I start a little bit ahead of the curve, I still need to do all the studies and testing and, and serve under a, another real estate licensed broker here for a period of time before getting my own broker's license, which as I say, always makes me kind of wonder who they're more concerned about down here, more attorneys or more brokers. So, but in any event, uh, like I say, I, I, I very much encourage my students and, and encourage any investors to understand the tax implications of transactions because every transaction is to a large extent governed by tax considerations. So um, things that I do basically in my private practice and then teach in my law school courses are number one, choice of entity. Um, you have several choices. I don't know how familiar you are with all these, but you have C corporations, which are business corporations formed under state law and, and treated as um, C corporations for federal income tax purposes because they do not make an election to be taxed as an S corporation. Now, C corporations are incredibly limited in this day and age. You just don't see them like you used to back before the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Uh -huh. Um, because of double taxation. The corporation is a separate entity which pays a corporate level tax and then the dividends which are distributed to the shareholders are taxed at the shareholder level, meaning that you have two bites at the apple for the uh, internal revenue service as opposed to just one. So you very rarely see those. Um, uh, you may see those in some situations where you're looking at unrelated business taxable income and using um, qualified plan money um, to invest, but uh, those are those are very rare in this day and age. S corporations are simply C corporations or business corporations for state law purposes, which have elected to be taxed to be taxed under a separate provision, provision of the code, which applies to S corporations. Here you have flow through tax treatment. In other words, you don't have a separate taxpayer at the corporate level. There are certain situations where S corporations can pay a, pay a corporate level tax, but that's incredibly rare. Um, Basically, the corporation is allowed to deduct from its taxable income any dividends, you know, paid to the um, shareholders. It's a flow through. The shareholders report their pro rata portion of net income on their returns, get a step up in basis when the 
dividend distribution, the earnings are then distributed. It just reduces basis, so you create one level of taxation. General partnerships, you don't see those a lot anymore. When I first started off practice, that was the vehicle for um, real estate. And basically what you have to have in a general partnership is you have to have one general partner who is fully and completely liable for all debts, liabilities, duties, obligations of the partnership. So what people were doing was setting up a corporate general partner, which was a thinly capitalized entity to serve as general partner, therefore having its own limited liability protection, serving as the general partner in the partnership. Um, question there became is whether or not it was going to be taxed as a partnership for federal income tax purposes, which led to tax attorneys making a lot of money um, giving their opinions on that particular matter, that what they had set up would in fact be um, considered as a partnership for federal income tax purposes. The downside being is if it wasn't, it was an association tax, was a corporation, the S election had not been made and you fell into double taxation. Limited partnerships, I think everybody's pretty aware um, of what those are. Um, basically limited liability partnerships is something that's in South Dakota, not so much down here. Limited liability companies have become the preferred vehicle for real estate investments. Basically, in those situations, you have what are called check the box um, entities. If they qualify under state laws, limited, limited liability companies, there's no separate um, level of, of federal review. In other words, they're going to be treated as partnerships for federal income tax purposes. Now, in limited liability companies, you can have member managed entities where the members control, or you can have a manager managed entity where basically the members have elected a manager to, um, to run the deal. So um, those are just your different choices, but you know, in this day and age, it's limited liability companies, basically about 100% of what I set up, what I do. So next slide, Aaron. Um, just kind of going through this business corporations, formation organization, business corporations have articles of incorporation issuing a certificate of incorporation. By the Secretary of State, you have hold the organizational meeting where you elect officers and members of the Board of Directors. You adopt bylaws, which are the governing uh, terms and conditions of the entity. You accept your stock subscriptions and issue certificates based upon the capital that you're raising. And again, you would, only in the most rarest of circumstances, you would make that S-Corporation election, where the S-Corporation makes the election and the shareholders consent to give you that flow through taxation um, with that particular entity, bank authorization resolutions, and then you have miscellaneous matters that you also address at that time. Limited liability companies, kind of the same format. You have articles of organization, certificate of organization, which is issued by the Secretary of State. Again, you can have member managed versus manager managed. Um, basically, manager managed you have a board of managers, which acts just like a board of directors in a corporation. At the organizational meeting, you elect your board of managers and your officers. Uh, obviously, if you're not manager managed, you don't have a board of managers, so you skip that. You adopt your operating agreement, which are like bylaws in a corporation, sometimes down here called a company agreement. Um, you accept the commitments, which are like stock subscriptions in a corporation, and you issue your membership certificates. Most entities these days are, are non-certificated ownership interests, so you don't you, you don't deal with the membership certificates. Again, the same bank authorization resolutions, miscellaneous company matters. 
if the companies, you know, entered into any types of agreements or anything, you usually ratify and approve those at that meeting. So other matters and considerations when forming and organizing an entity and getting into a real estate deal is, is capital calls. You always try to make sure that you have adequate capitalization up front. I always say that there's two um, elements to a successful organization, and that is to be duly capitalized and, and, uh, and properly managed. And in that situation, if you don't get enough capital up front and you run into issues, you got to go back to your investors to ask for additional capital, and that's never any fun. So, But you do have to have provisions in there. Uh, as to what you do, whether or not people have preemptive rights to put in additional funds and retain their percentage ownership interest, or whether they get diluted, um, if in fact they don't make their pro rata portion of a capital call. Um, obviously, securities law, the state, um, basically, you know, what we primarily do is, is 506B um, offerings under Regulation D, where we have an unlimited number of accredited investors that we can get into a deal and up to 35 non-accredited investors who meet certain sophisticated investor requirements. Um, a lot of the stuff that we do too is 506C under Regulation D, which has an unlimited number of accredited investors only. And we usually, you know, basically stay intrastate as opposed to interstate, meaning that we're dealing with state securities laws as opposed to federal, even though federal do overlap. Um, but you got to consider in any type of entity is minority rights. Um, you know, what do, what rights do minorities have as far as, um, objecting to certain matters. And, and usually what you do is, is you have either super majority or majority, um, voting rights with respect to major company transactions, like sale of substantially all the assets, liquidation, dissolution, or a merger or consolidation with another entity. Other than that, pretty much the um, um, powers of the entity are confined either to the board of directors in a corporation or the board of managers in a limited liability company. What you always want to consider is putting in, in place a buy-sell agreement with respect to a corporation or a member's agreement with respect to a limited liability company. Um, those can address issues such as the death of, one, of a shareholder or a member, um, it can do the disability if, in fact, they're actively involved in the entity. Can they address divorce situations um, where you end up maybe being a partner with the ex-wife of your business partner? You chose him, not her, and or the other way around, and, and you want to make sure you clean up ownership interests. Um, you also have what are called, uh, I call shootout provisions or put call options in there where you can basically resolve um, disagreements amongst the owners or the management um, by executing a put call option where you offer to buy the membership interest of another uh, investor, another member, and you give them the price, give them the terms. They have 30 days to either accept that or to turn that back around on you. It's a little bit like I call baseball arbitration in that management sets one figure and the player sets another and the arbitrator has to decide. Well, he can't split the difference. He can't go in the middle. He chooses either the management's proposal or the player's proposal. So it makes um, the situation where both parties are pretty reasonable um, in what they're asking for. And in this situation, that does the same thing. In other words, I would be willing to sell at the same price upon the same terms um, that, I'm, that I would be agreeing to buy on. So 
Liquidation dissolution, I mean, basically, again, you'd have a full member vote. Um, you would have a super majority, possibly, you know, two thirds or 75% or in some cases unanimous. Um, you know, basically, if, if the members especially can't agree and you don't have adequate um, provisions in there to address um, deadlock issues, then you may well just end up liquidating and dissolving. Um, federal income tax treatment, just to kind of go back on that, S corporations, you know, you have your initial capitalization on debt versus equity. Um, you got the conveyance of the real and personal property assets, tangible and intangible to the corporation. Those are tax-free transactions. In other words, if I have a piece of appreciated property and I convey that to the S corporation, I don't recognize gain on that transaction. The S corporation likewise does not recognize gain on that transaction. Um, but basically what we have is a situation where the corporation takes the transferor's basis in the property for tax purposes and the transferor takes a basis in their shareholder interest, which is equal to the basis that, that they had in the property that they conveyed. So in other words, um, taxation is not avoided. It's merely delayed until such time as, as either the entity sells that asset or the individual sells their stock. So it's basically what they call a carryover basis situation. IRS loves to tax you when you have money flowing through your hands. And obviously when you're just conveying a piece of property for an interest in an entity, that's not the case. So um, flow through entity again, S corporations are taxable at one level. That's the shareholder level, not the corporate level. Um, all items of income gain, loss, deduction, credit flow through from the S corporation to the individual shareholders on a per share per day basis throughout the year. Um, leads to some issues when you have a dissolution or the termination of a shareholder uh, shareholder's interest during the course of the year, and, and that's where you would make the election, special election, to split the tax year into two tax years. Um, so you have some certainty as to those items because of, uh, of that flow through or because of that allocation throughout the entire year. Next one there. Limited liability companies, again, initial capitalization, you know, look at your debt versus your equity and obviously make sure once again that you were adequately capitalized. Um, again, conveyance of the assets into the entity. Um, basically, there again is no, law, no gain or loss recognized by either the transferor who's becoming a member of the entity or the limited liability company which is issuing the membership interest. Again, you have that carryover and basis you also have what's called a tacking of holding periods, both with S-Corps and LLCs, where the holding period of the assets you're transferring is tacked onto the holding period where you're holding the equity interest in the entity. So and that becomes important, obviously, if you're talking long-term gain versus short-term gain. So you want to always look at the holding period. And there you do have, again, what they call tacking. So... Um, operations uh, on the LLC, the, it's, it's treated as a partnership for federal income tax purposes, as opposed to an S Corp where you have a separate set of provisions under um, IRC section 1300 and et cetera there. Um, that's applicable to S corporations. Um, and by reference, um, also applicable to, to some C corporation provisions. But LLCs don't have a separate code uh, portion of the code devoted to them. Instead, what you look at is the partnership um, provisions of the federal income tax code, because they are treated as partnerships for federal income tax purposes. 
Well, the tax advantages of LLCs over S corporations are, um, and I'll start at the bottom, their identity and number of participants. LLCs can have really any number in any type of investor. In other words, they can have other LLCs, they can have S corporations, C corporations, individuals, any types of trusts. They're not limited as to the identity of the member and number. There's no um, numerosity test here uh, with LLCs with respect to um, number of participants, number of investors, as there would be with S corporations. Um, go back one there real quick. I had two, I was going to go back from the bottom. Special allocation tax items, you are able to, to basically allocate your items of income gain, loss, deduction, and credit amongst the various members of an LLC, whereas you can't do that in an S corporation. There's going to be certain tax situations where certain tax items will benefit one member more than they would another. So you may well do special allocations to, to take advantage of that. Again, S corporations are spread out throughout the entire year on a per share per day basis. So you don't have that opportunity there. Big one is entity level debt. You're able to include that in your basis for purposes of deducting losses. Basically, deductibility of losses is always uh, limited to your basis. In an S corporation, that's the basis you have in your shares um, and the basis you have in any debt that you've advanced to the corporation. Um, any entity level debt incurred by the S corporation, you cannot include that in your basis for purposes of deducting losses, whereas you can with a, with a partnership or limited liability company. So, you know, like I say, just for all these reasons and more, it's a limited liability companies, which are the favorite vehicle for really any type of, of operation, whether it's an operating entity or real estate um, uh, participation. Okay, now we're ready for the next. Okay, this is kind of the tax 101 computation of gain and losses, which was actually the title of the deal, so of the talk today, but thought I'd give you some background on some other issues there. So basis, how is it established and how it changes? Basically, basis is, you know, what you have invested in something. If I go out and buy a piece of land for $100,000, that's my tax basis. Now, if it's just land, it's non-depreciable, so that basis doesn't change over time. If I turn around and sell that, if it, if it appreciates in value to $200,000, I got a basis of $100,000, my cost basis, then I've got $100,000 of gain. Um, basically the unrealized depreciation. So if I, if I do take that property I bought for 100,000 and I invest more dollars into it, I put a $400,000 building on there, now my cost basis is up to 500,000. Um, so basically, you know, you acquire basis is your tax cost, what you purchased it for um, to be increased. Um, if you have further investments um, uh, in it, you know, and basis, basis basically is, you know, something that changes over time. I mean, like I say, in an S corporation or a limited liability company, if you get distributions, it lowers your basis. If you take pass-through income on your personal return, it increases basis. So it's kind of a dynamic thing, obviously, something the accounts take the, the very close track of. Now, amount realized on a sale, um, how we determine that, basically, it's the cash or the fair market value of the property you would receive on the sale of property. Um, and, and that's how that's measured. So when we determine gain or loss in a sale or exchange, we compare the amount uh, which is realized or the amount received 
with the basis. If the amount that's received on the transaction is greater than the basis, you've got gain. If the amount received is less than the basis, you have loss. Now in both situations, those are that's called realized gain, which basically is different than the concept of recognized gain for tax purposes. You may realize gain on a transaction, but you may not have to recognize it for tax purposes. It's always important to make that distinction as to whether or not you have to report gain. Um, next slide there, Aaron. And in order to basically get non-recognition provision or treatment for federal income tax purposes, the general rule is if you realize gain, it's gonna be recognized and you're gonna pay the tax. So how do you avoid that? You have to take advantage of certain non-recognition provisions or deferral provisions. As we talked earlier, transfers to entities, you have that carryover basis and tack tacking of holding periods. So you're in entering into gain deferral there, and you're not gonna be taxed until you later basically convert that to interest to cash. Distributions from entities, uh, liquidation dissolution, you basically have that same carryover basis and tacking of holding periods. Again, deferring the gain until such time as you would sell that asset and generate cash. And you have like-kind exchanges, as everybody probably realizes under IRC Section 1031. That is a specific non-recognition provision which says even though you realize gain on a transaction, you don't have to recognize it. Now, the, the, the caveat there is if you get boot, if you get something which is non-like-kind exchange property, then you would recognize the realized gain to the extent of the boot that you received. Just so you know, in uh, at your next cocktail party, you can say that there's only one place in the entire Internal Revenue Code where the word sex is um, used, and it's in the IRC Section 1031, where they talk about um, cattle of different sexes not being like kind exchanges for 1031 purposes. So um, we also have qualified opportunity zones under IRC Section 10. This is uh, 1400Z2. This is relatively new. And basically, this has um, aspects of both deferral um, and total non-recognition. So if you sell appreciated property um, and basically within 180 days reinvest that in a qualified opportunity zone property or business, um, you're going to have automatic deferral of the gain that you realize on that transaction until the 2026 tax year. If you hold that property, at least the, the, the qualified, the, the QOZ property or business for at least five years, you get a 10% step up in basis, which is gain you'll never have to recognize. Uh, if you hold it for seven years, you get another 5%, so 15% total. Now we're running at the end of the, of the availability of the seven years because uh, 2026 is only seven years away. So, But the key here is that if you hold it at least 10 years, then you're gonna have a step up in basis fair market value when you sell it, um, which would basically allow you to take all post acquisition appreciation and value and never pay tax on it. There's only really one other provision in the code where you're able to get a step up in basis like that and that's in the death estate taxes. Um, so in other words, it, it's, it's a provision that gives you both deferral and total non-recognition um, based upon the step up in basis during while you're holding it and holding it for 10 years and selling it and getting that fair market value basis. So you have zero gain realized, zero gain recognized. 
Um, you know, when you're buying assets, uh, you have to allocate the purchase price, and that's used for establishing the gain and the loss and the basis to both the buyer and the seller. Um, obviously, there's some tension there because a seller would like to allocate in, di in a different buyer would. The buyer would like to allocate that purchase price towards assets that are depreciable, which everything but land is. But not only depreciable, but have the the uh, quickest recovery periods and have accelerated depreciation. And again, that's going to be some tension with the with the seller because they're going to have some recapture income to pay um, based upon the depreciation they've taken. So, um, just something to really be careful of when you do buy or sell property is that you get that allocation of purchase price done correctly. Um, there's also special provisions in LLCs regarding contributing appreciated property to limited liability companies and basically taking that unrealized appreciation, the value over the, the contributing partner's basis into account and, and then down the road if that property is sold, basically making that allocation back to the contributing partner so that the non-contributing partners aren't paying a pro-rata portion of that gain. Um, when that asset is sold. In other words, that's preserved and allocated to the contributing partner and not allocated out amongst all the members pro rata based upon their ownership interests. So anyway, with that, where do we go from here? Questions. I uh, got one question here. Um, so uh, one question is uh, this, uh, from from James, uh, he personally owns some property in his own name. Um, wants to get it in the entity. Worried about taxing and all that kind of thing. What what's uh, what would you recommend, Brian? Well, that's absent extremely unique circumstances. That's a totally tax free transaction. In other words, he's basically just changing his form of ownership from direct ownership of that property to indirect ownership through an entity that he owns. So when he makes that conveyance, when he forms an organizing entity and then capitalizes it by conveying that property, that's gonna be a tax-free transaction to him and a tax-free transaction to the entity. Now again, you know, you're, you're not gonna be able to escape that gain, it's just deferred gain, that gain is preserved for later recognition, but the IRS isn't going to, um, basically tax you unless you're generally getting cash in a transaction. And in this situation, the IRS recognizes too that it's it's wise from just an asset protection planning standpoint for that individual to own that through an entity which provides limited liability protection as opposed to owning it individually, which does not. And again, the reason to do entities or one of the major reasons is limited liability protection. You want to make sure that if something goes wrong with that property, that any claims to the creditors of that entity are limited to the assets of that entity and can come, can't come and take your other assets. So asset protection planning says that all operating entities, all real estate entities, any entity, um, any activity should really be done through an entity as opposed to do individually. So uh, next question is uh, special allocations in LLCs. So uh, are, are you saying that someone could allocate gain or loss to an individual? So like uh, one person could take the losses in an LLC and another person could take gains and et cetera? Yeah, as long as they pass what's called the substantial economic effect test. 
which is is basically something that's in there to make sure that you're not messing with the tax laws. But but that again is the big advantage of a limited liability comp company tax as a partnership for federal income tax purposes is you can make special allocations. If you have like a low income housing tax credit project, you can allocate those tax credit projects to the you know those individuals that can take the best tax advantage of those. Um, you can't do that on an S corporation because every single item of income loss gain deduction and credit is allocated on a per share per day basis throughout the year. Partnerships give you the opportunity to make special allocations as long as, like I say, they pass that substantial economic effects test. Um, realized versus recognized. I uh, got a couple questions on um, if you could define that a little better. Uh, Okay, well, realized gain just means that we're talking gain here, so I'll just use that example, but it's the amount you receive over your adjusted basis in the property for tax purposes. If you got a $100,000 basis for tax purposes and you sell for 300, you got a $200,000 realized gain, okay? Now, again, the rule is anytime you realize gain, you're also gonna recognize it. Recognizing it means you include it in income and you pay tax on it. Unless you can find a specific non-recognition provision like 1031, like kind exchanges, or like this, you know, the new QOZ rules where you can defer the taxation. So again, just it, it's terminology, which in the tax rule is very important, talking about realized versus recognized. So you're always going to realize gain when or loss when you sell or exchange an asset the question is, do you have to recognize the gain for tax purposes, or can you recognize the loss for tax purposes, because sometimes you want to be able to take advantage of those, or can you fit yourself into some other mode where you're able to defer that taxation? And like with Q, you're never able to totally get away from taxation in 1031, but you are um, in the QOZ for that post of post-acquisition appreciation and property down the road when you get that fair market value step up in basis after holding it for 10 years. Again, the only other step up in basis fair market value date of death is property received from an estate. So if the, like for instance, if the estate, well, Joe individual has a piece of property, it's worth 500,000, he has a $100,000 basis. He's got $400,000 of unrealized depreciation in that asset. He dies. When he dies, all of his assets become owned by his estate. Now, that estate has a fair market value date of death basis. In other words, it's the full 400000 So the day before Joe dies, if he sells it, he's got $300,000 of realized gain, potentially recognized. If the estate sells it, or whoever gets it from the estate sells it, they have zero gain. In other words, you know, it's that fair market value, date of death, step up in basis that applies um, to estates, which also applies now to the new QOZ, um, if you qualify um, for that treatment. So again, realized versus recognized. Um, and again, non-recognition provisions or any conveyance that you make to, to an entity. Um, S corporation, C corporation is a little more restrictive and that you have to have control when you make that um, conveyance, but no such requirement in, in LLCs, taxable as partnerships. Great. Uh, I, you know, I think, I think, isn't it you that always tells me delay for taxation, it's delay, delay, delay. 
delay some more, delay, 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 die? <laughs> well, it's called dying for tax purposes, and that's not <laughs> highly recommended. But uh, no, anytime that you can, you know, move losses, deductions, and everything towards you, it's a benefit because they're worth more today than they would be down the road. Anytime you can defer gain down the road, income down the road, it's a benefit because, um, you know, it, it's, it, you basically are now dealing with the pre-tax profits to reinvest, you know. Um, so anytime you can delay the, the taxable recognition of gain, you do it. Um, so move income and gain down the road and move um, losses and deductions towards you. Great. Uh, Brian, can you speak to uh, debt relief restrictions when doing a 1031 exchange? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, basically debt relief, I mean, you have to compare the debt relief on the property that you're basically conveying and the property that you're receiving and there's a netting out process and it can be considered as boot and therefore taxable in the transaction. Again, you're gonna have non-recognition unless to the extent of boot received. And boot can be anything that's non-qualifying property. Okay, so if, for instance, if I got a piece of property that has a basis of $100,000 and it's worth $500,000, um, you know, basically if I, in exchange, get a property worth Two, so I got, what did I say, 100000 for I got $400,000 of unrealized appreciation there. If I get property worth three hundred, dollars which qualifies as like-kind exchange, but get $200,000 cash, I'm going to be taxed on that $200,000 cash, okay? In other words, I've got the cash. That's when the IRS loves to tax you. I'm going to be taxed. Now, if your realized gain was only 100000 and you got two hundred thousand of cash. You're only going to be. You're never be taxed more than your than your uh, realized gain. Okay, so it's non-recognition, um, except to the extent of boot. But then again, only to the amount of the realized gain on the transaction. You're not creating more now. But this whole deal with respect to debt relief and debt assumption is basically something that you need to walk through and. And again, there's a netting out process, taking conveying property subject to a debt and getting property or receiving property subject to a debt. So that's kind of a whole nother discussion. Uh, last question before we turn it back over to Joseph. Uh, what would you say the main reason why an LLC is preferred over to an S Corp on holding property? Flexibility. One word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you really have much more flexibility as far as, again, the identity and the number of the participants, um, the abilities to make those allocations, um, you know, the ability to, to include entity level debt. I mean, you just have so much more flexibility um, <clears throat> in dealing with a limited liability company. Partnerships have always been the preferred vehicle. And, and, you know, now that we have these check the box limited liability companies, which are automatically um, treated as partnerships for federal income tax purposes, that's, that's simply the way to go. Great. Well, we'll turn it over to Joseph for uh, um, uh, some info about Real Estate IQ. Thanks, Brian, for uh, joining today. My pleasure. Thank you. That was great, Brian. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, if you can stop sharing, then I can share my screen real quick. All right, guys, uh, this is uh, Joseph James. I'm the commercial advisor for Real Estate IQ. 
So uh, the, the webinars we are doing here is part of uh, us trying to bring you more value as far as educating you and so we can all do better deals uh, and also safer deals, right? So I want to talk about Real Estate IQ and ROI Muse. Uh, Real Estate IQ provides all kinds of distressed data or distressed leads for you to find off-market properties. So anything you can think about from pre-foreclosures to uh, delinquent taxes to probate to divorce to code violations, uh, any kind of distress sign uh, from a seller's perspective, uh, we have the data for that. And then you can subscribe the data for monthly or uh, you can subscribe for yearly. And you can also, if you want to subscribe for the entire market or by county. Uh, so we make it very flexible for you to uh, get the data uh, based on your affordability right? and, uh, and which area you want to focus working on. Uh, we also offer a lot of free services. So please sign up for the free services. The, let me go through this real quick. So we provide heat maps for where there's more deals. Right? So you want to look at where you want to target your marketing dollars. Then we have reports that will give you which areas you know, you, you are finding better deals and you know, more discounted deals. We also have something called a rental index where you can uh, look at the rental index heat map to see which areas, if you're looking for rental properties, that you may be able to find a property that is going to cash flow. Now we have a deal of the week. Uh, this is a free service. So every day we analyze the property and send it out for everybody to look at. This is a great way to learn. So you're actively looking at the deal and then you can find out why that, I mean, whether you agree or not, uh, why that's the deal or not a deal, right? So that's the best way to uh, see you know what kind of return you can get on a cash on cash perspective and also on a return on equity perspective. Now we are also coming up with the commercial deal of the week. So commercial data is new with Real Estate IQ. We just launched that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so that uh, service will be coming soon. So please sign up for that. So you can also see uh, multifamily properties and office retail and even land, uh, commercial land that uh, might be a distressed property. So we'll analyze and see uh, this property works uh, X amount and you know you may be able to purchase it at a much lower cost. Sign up for uh, one of the 45 minute sessions that we are offering. So the best way to get to know the tools and systems and the data we are available is to sign up for a 45 minute one-on-one -on -one demo. So we'll have two different demos. One is for deal finding. So this is a uh, training on how to work with the data uh, to find off-market properties. And then we have deal analysis as well. So for deal analysis, once you find the property, how to, how to run the numbers to make sure that, you know, that venture is going to be profitable. All right, and then we are launching a new Real Estate IQ community. Uh, there'll be, uh, this is, uh, the intent for this is to connect investors to investors and also investors to vendors. So there'll be a lot of vendors, if, you know, whatever service you're looking for, like Brian here uh, is providing legal services and there'll be tax, uh, tax services as well. And then uh, hard money lenders or any kind of lenders or title companies. So there'll be a lot of vendors uh, at, uh, available to you uh, to work with. And then most importantly, you know, you have other like-minded people that you can connect with and help each other. For webinar schedules, follow us at our official social media accounts or visit us at www.realestateiq.co.